Uh, well, friends, uh, what do you think of when you hear the word law? Uh, I'm guessing that in our world, uh, the word law has a negative sense, as something that restricts our freedom in some way. Uh, think about traffic laws, for example, that give a penalty when we drive too fast. Uh, think about parking laws that give a fine uh, if we park in a spot beyond a certain time. I think of lockdown laws that limit our freedom and ability to go to the cafe or the beach or on a holiday. Now, because the word law has this kind of flavour in modern usage, it, it's easy to come to the law in the Bible with this kind of baggage. Uh, we can often um, find the law in the Bible as something negative uh, that restricts our freedom, or at the very least, something that is outdated and irrelevant. However, I want to suggest that the godly Jew would not have thought about the law in the Bible in such ways. And so, for example, uh, listen to the psalmist in Psalm 119, who writes this. He writes, Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. You see, for the godly Jew, the law was something to delight in, for the law contained God's will that would lead to life itself. Uh, it was what life was all about. In fact, the word law or Torah in the Hebrew doesn't have negative connotations, but is a very positive word meaning instruction or teaching uh, or guidance. Now, it is true that in the Jewish mind, the word law refers uh, not necessarily to a specific set of rules and regulations in the Bible. Uh, you might know that it refers uh, to the first five books of the Old Testament. That is the law. That is the Torah. However, within those five books, we do see certain uh, rules and regulations of which the Ten Commandments are foundational because they are the first words that are spoken directly by God to the people of Israel at Mount Sinai. And so, uh, brothers and sisters, as we go through the Ten Commandments today, uh, my hope and, and prayer is that we would learn to delight in them, for they come from a God whom we can delight in. Now, before we work our way through the Ten Commandments, uh, I want you to see some very important things about the shape of these commandments. Firstly, notice that the Ten Commandments begin with a prologue uh, or an introduction which reminds the people of Israel of their salvation. And so if you have a look um, in your Bibles there in verse 2 of chapter 20 of Exodus, uh, you'll see there that God says, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. In other words, what God is saying to the people of Israel is, I have already saved you from slavery in Egypt to be my covenant people. And what I am about to say in the Ten Commandments 
is going to spell out what it looks like to be my covenant people. It's going to teach you how you are going to be a royal priesthood and a holy nation, as we've heard in previous weeks. Now, this is very important because uh, what it means is that you don't read and obey these laws in order to become God's people. Rather, these laws show you what it looks like to be God's people. Uh, it's a bit like having adopted children. Now, I have some friends who have an adopted child, and uh, I imagine that when they brought uh, him home for the first time, they had to teach him the family rules. Uh, you know, no pulling your sister's hair, no eating dinner in front of the television, no disrespecting parents. You see, it's not that these things made uh, the child a part of the family. No, he was already chosen. He was already loved and welcomed in. But being a family member entails following certain family rules and obligations, doesn't it? And it's the same with law in the Bible. If you are here and you are not a Christian person, now please hear very carefully that it is not keeping laws that saves you and makes you a part of God's family. Rather, you become a part of God's family by receiving God's grace and kindness and mercy to you in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ for your sins. Further, if we are Christians, then it is equally important to remind ourselves that we are saved by God's grace and that obeying God's commandments is simply a, a, our thankful response to the salvation that God has already won for us at the cross. If we forget this, then we will live our Christian lives either in perpetual guilt as we see ourselves failing again and again, or we will live in smugness whenever we feel as though we're doing well uh, in keeping God's commandments. Secondly, notice the pattern of the Ten Commandments. Uh, you might have seen as we read through them earlier that um, commandments one to four are about how God's people are to relate to God himself while commandments 5 to 10 are about how God's people are to relate to one another and with their neighbour. This is summed up later by Jesus uh, in the New Testament when he says that the most important commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second most important commandment is to love your neighbour as yourself. Uh, it does seem, doesn't it, that the love of God and the love of neighbour are, are profoundly linked together. Uh, friends, that's why we can't have one without the other. Uh, you know, the world wants to love one another, but wants to do away with a love for God. But it doesn't work, you see, for it is only God who can define for us what it looks like to love our neighbours. Love and morality are not self-evident things in this world. It has to be defined for us by God who created us and the world. And so it is no surprise that our world that has largely rejected God is not marked by true love, 
but by brokenness and strife. On the other hand, religious hypocrisy is also a danger, isn't it? You see, uh, this is the opposite problem of claiming to love God and yet doing away with love for neighbour. But if you do not have a love for others, it shows that you do not really love God, for God is a God who teaches us to love others and enables us to love others. Uh, there, is, there is a danger on the opposite end of the spectrum as well, isn't there? Uh, finally, I want to quickly point out that the Ten Commandments contain big principles rather than detailed legislation. Uh, you can see this in the fact that there are no penalties attached to the breaking of these laws. Uh, next week, we'll see that what follows the Ten Commandments um, are more detailed laws that flesh out what the Ten Commandments look like in uh, the practice of the life of Israel. But the Ten Commandments themselves are more like the constitution of Israel, the big principles, uh, rather than the detailed laws. Uh, now, friends, this morning I'm going to um, take us through the Ten Commandments, uh, but bear in mind that uh, it will be impossible to look at all the Ten Commandments in uh, great detail. Um, so what we're going to get this morning is, is a little bit like a bus tour of the Ten Commandments. Um, and yet I, I think it will be important for us to step off the bus, uh, perhaps in our own time, to think more deeply about these commandments and how they might apply to our lives. Uh, I think joining our book club, for example, uh, over the coming weeks might be one uh, good way to do this. Well, if we turn to the first commandment, this is a commandment where God demands exclusive worship of him. You can see it there in verse 3 where God says, you shall have no other gods before me. Now, when you read this, it is possible to think that this is saying that the people of Israel can have other gods as long as they don't come before the Lord God, as if the God of Israel is just the first among many. But that's not what it's saying. Uh, literally, this reads, no other gods in front of my face, or no other gods in my presence. In other words, what God is saying here is that he is not willing to share the allegiance and loyalty and worship of his people with any other god or so-called gods in this world. Why? Well, it's not because God is insecure and needy and somehow, you know, he's made complete by our undivided worship of him. No, it's because of what he's already said in verse 2. What has he said? He said, look at what I've done for you in saving you from Egypt. Look at the, the way I've crushed every other so-called God in Egypt in the plagues. Look at the way I've saved you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself in a covenant relationship, a special relationship. I am the one and only. Uh, on my desk, uh, I have a, a photo of my wife. 
and uh, my wife's going to kill me for showing this particular photo. But um, imagine if next to that photo, I put a photo of another woman that I constantly look at during the day. How do you think my wife would react? It's not a small matter, is it? It will probably destroy the good relationship that we have and the good things that we enjoy. In a similar way, God's demand of exclusive worship is not because God is insecure or needy. No, it's because he is the only God who is worthy of our worship and he wants to protect his good relationship with his people. And so I take it that, therefore, you cannot be a Hindu, for example, and worship this God at the same time. You cannot be a Buddhist and worship this God. In fact, you cannot persist in worship of anything else in your life. Uh, to love other things and to serve other things as God, like money or possessions or career or even family, and expect a relationship with God at the same time. Uh, what are you worshipping in your life, says God? through this commandment. Now, the second commandment prohibits idolatry. Uh, I don't think this is talking about uh, worshipping statues of other gods, like the Egyptian gods, for example, or the, the many other gods that we might see in the form of statues around us. Uh, that's already been prohibited by the first commandment. Rather, this is really talking about trying to represent Yahweh, the, the God of Israel, in the form of created things in this world, which the people of Israel uh, tragically do later uh, in their worship of a golden calf, if you remember. Why is this such a stupid thing to do? Well, it's because you will never be able to capture God in physical form or in an image you know if you take a photo of someone you can never really capture everything about that person can you or even much about that person you cannot capture that person's likes and dislikes you cannot capture the person's thoughts and feelings and character so it is with god no image in this world will do justice to who God really is in all his glory and majesty and honour, which is why the, the, in the Bible God always relates to us through his word rather than through physical images. In fact, if you try to reduce God into a physical form or image, then what you are really doing is you are trying to imagine God to be different to who he really is. We are reducing him because we want to domesticate him and control him and, and make him serve us rather than us serving him. If we keep on going with the marriage illustration, it's a bit like a wife wanting to change her husband and wanting him to be different all the time. Now, that's why in verse 5 you can see that the prohibition of idolatry is based on God being a jealous God 
This is not saying that God is jealous in the petty ways in which we can tend to be jealous. But it's saying that if you imagine a God for yourself who is different from the true and living God, then God will rightly be jealous and angry because you are really wanting him to be different to who he really is. Now, again, uh, we may not try to represent God in the form of physical images or idols, but I want to suggest that it's very easy for us to sort of imagine God for ourselves, isn't it? We may do it by never speaking uh, about things like sin and God's wrath or thinking about uh, these things that God has revealed to us about himself so that we turn God into a bit of a pushover who never demands anything from us. Or the opposite may be true. Uh, We may so often talk about sin and judgment and condemnation that we hardly speak of God's grace so that we turn God into a harsh tyrant and entirely different to the God of uh, steadfast love and mercy that we find in the Bible. Are you someone who imagines God to be different to who he really is? Now, the third commandment is about honouring God, which uh, we we saw this morning in the kids' talk. Uh, You can see it there in verse 7, which says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. It's true, isn't it, that names are not as important to us in this day and age as in biblical times. However, even today, we can be aware of the significance of someone's name, can't we? And so, for example, if somebody has been falsely accused, they may say, I want to clear my name. Or we may speak of someone's great achievements by saying he's made a name for himself. In a similar way, the name of God here represents God's reputation because of what he has done in saving Israel, uh, saving the people of Israel from Egypt with his mighty hand. And so not taking the name of God in vain is about much more than not simply using God's, word, uh, God's name as a swear word. It's actually about not living in a way that brings God and his salvation into disrepute in this world. In fact, the phrase to not take in vain is literally to not lift up in vanity. In other words, it's about not living and speaking and behaving in a way that gives the impression that God's reputation and his salvation are worthless and empty and unimportant things. It's worth asking ourselves, isn't it, what our family and friends and work colleagues might think of God after having observed our lives? Are you and I someone who brings credit to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ as the one whom we now worship as our saviour? Or are you someone who brings discredit to his name because your life 
treats Jesus and his salvation as trivial and unimportant matters. Now, the fourth commandment is about keeping the Sabbath. And I think it's fair to say that uh, out of all the Ten Commandments, this is the one that is most difficult to think through. Uh, you may have seen the movie The Chariots of Fire, which is based on the Christian athlete, Eric Little, who refused to run in the Olympics on a Sunday because he believed that Sunday was the Sabbath and he wanted to honour God by not breaking it. Was he right? Is it wrong to work on a Sunday? Is it even right to call Sunday the Sabbath, given that in the Jewish world, the Sabbath was actually a Saturday? Is the Sabbath about resting physically, or is it about worship? Uh, the questions can go on and on. Now, after all that, uh, I'm not going to attempt to answer all those questions. Uh, you might want to come to the Q&A afterwards uh, where uh, we, we may have time to explore some of these in a bit more detail. Uh, or you may want to come to the book club uh, when we look at the Sabbath commandment um, in a few weeks' time. But I will say that although there is great wisdom in taking a day off each week for physical rest, as created beings, the Sabbath rest in the Old Testament, I think, is really about celebrating the salvation that we have in Jesus. Are you someone who regularly celebrates the Lord Jesus Christ in your heart and the salvation that he has brought us? Where do you do this? Um, is this a regular exercise of yours? Now, friends, uh, as I mentioned before, uh, commandments 5 through to 10 are about the kind of relationships that God's people are to have with their neighbours. Many of these commandments will be familiar to you. Honour your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery and so forth. However, I want you to notice here that whilst commandments 5 to 9 are about external behaviour, the final commandment is different because it is really about what goes on inside a person. It says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. You see, this is not something that you can legislate against in our world, is it? I mean, if you were a lawmaker, how will you legislate against coveting? How will you know whether someone is coveting for a start? What penalties would you dish out if someone covets another person's wife or, or possessions inside? But the point is that God is not simply interested in the outward behaviour of his people. He is interested in the heart and what really goes on inside. He's interested in your thought life and your motivations and your desires, which nobody else may see, but he sees. 
For it is really what is going on in your heart and in my heart that drives the outward behavior in the end, isn't it? You see, it is really coveting in the heart that leads to murder and adultery and stealing and bearing false witness. We might say that we have not committed the physical act of adultery, for example. But the only reason why many people haven't committed adultery is because of a lack of opportunity or because of a lack of interest by the people of the opposite sex or because they're afraid of the consequences. However, the motivation for adultery is there in the heart, isn't it? As we covet things that don't belong to us, perhaps our neighbors' wives, perhaps on the computer screen or in the workplace. You see, this is why Jesus in the New Testament condemns the Pharisees who are all about external behavior rather than inward change. They are the ones who simply do the minimum outwardly rather than wanting to do the, the maximum in obeying God from the heart. Now, what is your heart like? Is what God is saying or asking in this passage. Uh, now, brothers and sisters, uh, here's the million-dollar question. How does the law including the Ten Commandments, apply to us. In one sense, there are some laws that uh, might make us scratch our heads and wonder how this is all relevant to us. Uh, the Sabbath law may be an example of this, and uh, we will see many more laws next week that might appear obscure at first sight. That's because we live not under the old covenant uh, of the Jews, but under the new covenant, which has been sealed by Jesus' blood. Yet it is also true that if you and I are a part of the new covenant, the old covenant laws are not irrelevant. In fact, the promise of the new covenant is not that God will do away with the law, but that he will write the law on our hearts to enable us to obey from the heart. So the law is still applicable to Christians in an ongoing way. But how are they applicable? Well, uh, let me uh, suggest three quick things uh, for us to think about uh, as we finish up this morning. Uh, firstly, the law operates as our tutor. Now, you can see this in places like Galatians 3, uh, if you want to look it up in your own time. Just like a tutor or a good tutor will show you your faults and direct you in the way that you should go, well, the law shows our sins and directs us to Christ in whom we are made righteous. Secondly, the law operates as a restraint. You can see this in places like 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 9 to 10 which says that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless. In other words, it operates as a restraint on evil in this world. For without such laws, there would simply be the hell of anarchy. Finally, the law operates as a guide for Christians. 
What does it mean to love my neighbour? Well, the law spells out what it looks like to love my neighbour. I shouldn't murder or hate them. I shouldn't sleep with my neighbour's wife or uh, cause her to lust. I shouldn't steal, even if I can get away with it. I shouldn't lie and fudge my tax return just because I operate a cash business. Now, we need to see how Jesus fulfilling the law transforms how the law applies to us, which we'll continue to explore next week. But for those who belong to Christ, the law still acts as our guide. But friends, I want you to see this morning just how good these laws really are. I mean, can you imagine what the world would be like if everyone in this world kept these laws? We would live in a world where we could walk the streets at night without fear. We would live in a world where we didn't have to lock the doors when we go out. We would live in a world where weapons would be unnecessary. Whole industries would disappear. We would live in a world where there would ultimately be justice and righteousness. You see, these laws are good because they reflect the good character of God himself. How good is it that God teaches us not to murder because he is a God who values life and loves to save? How good is it that God teaches us not to commit adultery because he is a God who is faithful to his covenant? How good is it that God teaches us not to steal because God is a giver? How good is it that God teaches us not to lie because God always tells us the truth? Now, do you see how good and gracious God's law really is to us? Now, will you delight in these laws and obey them in your life and in my life? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have not only saved us through the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, but that you teach us how to live as your people. We thank you that your word and your commandments reflect your good and gracious character and are good for us in our relationship with you and those around us. Now, please help us to be the people who obey your commandments, not simply in external ways, but inwardly from the heart. Uh, help us to be people who genuinely love you and love our neighbour. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.